This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, I'm Asha Abalasha. I'm the founder and CEO of Mason Dixie Biscuit Company. And what I love about retail is that uh, it's it's always a walking experience. I mean, as far back as I can remember, it was always exciting. You can't drink, you can't buy your own things yet, but it was always so fun to be that mall rat and to go and experience different stores and I shop and just imagine what life could be like with all these fun, cool products that are placed in front of you. From New York City, you're listening to Retail Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Rako. So glad to have you here with us. Thanks for joining. Uh, also with us is uh, our good friend and co-host, Rebecca Fitz. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Mark. Yay. It's us again. <laughs> Uh, and also, it's so great when it's us. It just all works out so well. And and uh, also with us today, of course, Asha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Great. And where where are you recording from? From your home where? Home in Baltimore, Maryland. Ah, Baltimore, Maryland. Love Baltimore. Let, let's start here, shall we? We happen to be recording this. Let's put get the elephant in the room out of the room for a second. Uh, we're recording this in unprecedented times to some degree uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, right in its heart, right at the apex, if you will. And uh, it has made running a business be something very different. Fortunately, you're already about five or I think six years into your company. Uh, What has it meant to you, the things that you have already accomplished in your business, Asha? I was able to formulate something that quite honestly, in retrospect, is, um, you know, in these times really holding us up in a, in a really big way. Um, you know, being in retail, we've been looking at how the progression of retail has changed over time. Um, you know, the restaurant environment's getting more and more competitive. Um, there's more and more options out there, which is wonderful. Um, but at the same time, it's also creating this hotbed of activity in really awesome new age products, modern products um, like ourselves. I mean, people don't look at a biscuit as um, so much of a modern item, but the way we're doing it shockingly is, you know, um, this return to natural, this return to scratch made, um, you know, but doing it with the convenience and not, you know, doing all the prep work. Um, so it's really launched us into a position, especially now, right. When everyone's forced to learn how to cook by watching YouTube videos and Instagram, um, videos just to get the basics down. And then the daunting task of even getting the groceries, you know, um, has really kind of turned the world on edge, but, you know, I'm really glad that we stepped in with the product offering that we have to make this time a lot easier for so many people out there. So how do you take something like a biscuit that has, you know, it has built into it certain memories and connotations and specific times at which a biscuit enters our lives or how we think about biscuits in terms of the movies or history or whatever mm-hmm. and, and make it so this this ain't your grandma's biscuit, that this is... I love that. I love that you just said that. Um, it's funny because when I first started the company, I actually um, did one of the first food Kickstarters um, when Kickstarter was launched. Wow. It, at, 
Yeah. At that time, it was for a lot of innovators, right? People that had gadgets and gizmos and they didn't want to call 1-800-MY-IDEA, right? They, they wanted to, you know, put it out there. And I was like, well, my idea is a restaurant. I'll try it. You know, there was, I think, one or two others on the platform at the time. And what I never in a million years anticipated was the response that I got from people all over the world, not even in the country, all over the world, um, transplants, American transplants, expats, telling every, even if they gave me $1, they would send me like the most incredible messages. Um, they would give me a dollar and send me in, in like a direct message on Kickstarter saying, you know, uh, this reminds me, you know, my great, great grandfather used to love a ham and tomato biscuit. And thank you for, you know, drawing attention to a biscuit or, Hey, my grandmother was my world. She had this awesome recipe for jam. I'm going to give it to you. It was just like, I don't even know why, like people just felt compelled to give me such personal anecdotes associated with this piece of bread. Um, and then when I got really educated, as I started the brand, I realized that it's, you know, there, it's not just, it's not just the biscuit in and of itself. There's a lot of history to what the modern day biscuit or what, what that biscuit is back in the day. Um, you know, uh, biscuits were actually cut with like, you know, emptied out um, soup cans or vegetable cans because um, it was poor man's food, right? And it was filling. Um, and quite honestly, if you really dig into it, it was originated in England and it's all the English traditions that kind of came into the genteel South. Um, that sweet tea was a derivative of, ice, uh, of tea because it was too hot to sip hot tea. So there's a lot of uh, really cool historical attributes, but but anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> um, the history, though, of that really, if you look back at what where a biscuit has gone, it's evolved a million times over in less than 200 years, starting out as a tea biscuit, evolving into a staple that fed America through the Great Depression, and then coming up through the era of convenience and the militarization of food. Um, the one iconically or iconically American cuisine we have is Southern cuisine. And, um, you know, for some reason during the wars that we experienced in the early part of the 20th century, we started really ruining these natural foods that everybody made by hand, you know, it's the original farm to table, all those things. Um, and so that's when the biscuit started evolving from this awesome, easy to make thing with cold butter and some flour into this hockey puck that was manufactured with hydrogenated soybean oil and aluminum and titanium phosphate. You know, you, you start to go, what, what the heck happened here? And then when I, when I really got into it um, and realized that this wasn't just a hobby anymore and it wasn't a nice to have tchotchke to sell instead of t-shirts at the restaurant, I, I realized that there was a huge opportunity that even restaurants were selling that same hockey puck made with crap because um, that's what the food distributors had. And so when I really looked at not just biscuits, I started looking at other pastries and other bread items. And this is really what has led to our new product offerings today. There are so many things that have been militarized and, and are just really not edible. I mean, even in the baking set, like the like Duncan Hines, Betty Crocker, like any of those dry mixes. If you turn the back of that box around, there's like polyurethane in it, um, and it's because it's a it's a cooking retardant. It slows down things so people don't burn stuff. But at the same time, who are you making those cakes for? These kids' birthday parties. So there's this there's this huge misconception and this like really 
lack of big lack of progression, I think, in where the biscuit spun after like the 50s. And we never got out of it. And I was shocked. And it's really what's kind of given us this home now today in this modern era around what a biscuit can be. We have amazing supply chain technology now and we have infrastructure to hold frozen products now. And it allows us natural products to really have a voice and a space in the retail world. Now, today, we're launching scones, we're launching sweet rolls, um, we have a multitude of other really cool innovations coming down the pipe. And it's crazy to me that these are innovative, because all I'm doing is recreating what everybody knows it to be. So it's kind of a beautiful thing. What have you had to do to educate restaurants and consumers uh, to say, no, this is what you want? Yeah, that's a really great question. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't hard in the beginning because I think people realized the difference immediately, right? Because everyone's had Pillsbury biscuits, right? Everyone's had the generic hockey pucks that are available or the pop and fresh tins. Everyone has a negative experience with how those turn out. So for, for, for us at Mason-Dixie entering into this world, we had this instant, um, people wanted to try this, you know, talked up biscuit and then, hey, we, we lived up to the hype. And then as we transitioned in retail at, at, at grocery, um, the transition was, cha- was challenging because we, we didn't have the doughboy doing the marketing for us. We didn't have a track record of a hundred years as a, as an American owned brand, you know, so we really had to think outside the box and I, I and quite a part in the pun. Um, but quite frankly, our box is what I think did a lot of the talking. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at the competition and how product was placed on the shelf. And everyone had that crappy pillow bag, you know, that like falls over. You can't even tell what it is. It's so not appealing. And I, I was like, I'm going to put it in a box because then I get, you know, at least four sides of real estate for me to be able to talk about the product, what's in it, really call out why this is special and it's legible. And then on top of that, I don't have the problem with stuff falling over. It looks really nice on shelf. And then on top of that, I'm going to make it a black box. So it looks bougie enough for people to go, what the heck is that? Right. And it worked by some miracle. That little black box is what took off. And then what did we do from there? We just made sure that Facebook, Instagram, our website was on there and there were turning points to educate the consumer there. Um, at our restaurant, uh, we put a lot of collateral out on our menus and things to really tell the customer what they're eating. Like, uh, this is actually not about biscuits, but a fun tidbit that I frequently still have to tell customers. Um, we, we use fresh hormone free antibiotic free chicken. Um, and, Sometimes when, and we brine it. So sometimes when you brine chicken and you use um, fresh chicken, the bone stays red or pink. Um, and so you will not believe um, how many Americans are trained to think that that means that it's raw, um, because technically most Americans are eating frozen chicken, and frozen chicken could be frozen. I mean, two years old technically. Um, and what happens is the bone turns black when you cook it because technically it's frostbitten. It's just like having a frostbitten toe that turns black. So they would always be like, oh, this chicken's not done. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is what fresh chicken looks like. And their eyes were like, what? And then I'm like, yeah, you know, in these biscuits, we don't use aluminum. They're like aluminum. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like there's aluminum baking powder in most baking products today that don't use yeast. And they were like flabbergasted. So the shock and horror effect um, in trial, uh, I think, really spoke to 
a lot of people, even my staff. I mean, that, I spent a lot of time training our staff to to realize what they're eating um, and be educated about it so that they don't continue to make bad decisions for them, you know, at home when they when they go home. They don't necessarily eat Mason-Dixie every day, right? But when they go home and they go grocery shopping and they go look for products, they now know to, like, turn that label over and see what's in there. I love the sustainability uh, kind of part of, you know, how you built the brand. Um, and I still think Americans don't necessarily know where their food comes from or their clothing comes from. Um, a little bit of a, a pivot. Um, you're one of the few brands that uh, was a food brand on Kickstarter and just kind of maybe unpack your route to where you are now, because I just found your story um, so interesting and uh, maybe I'm wrong, but also so lucky as far as where we are um, now in these times to have something in the grocery business. Restaurants are obviously suffering, but you, you have one of those too. And I don't know if the restaurant we're referring to is the one in Union Station or if this is a whole new restaurant. Yeah, it's a new, we we, we spun out of that um, restaurant location at Union Market because it was just like an eight by 10 food stall. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if I, so I guess if I back out into kind of how we got started. So um, I I started Mason Dixie um, and I kicked it off on Kickstarter to just really get a response from customers because at that time, DC was having this really fervent startup activity. A lot of really creative food concepts were coming out. People were um, bringing more options to the table. And unfortunately, they were also godfathering a lot of really now really big fast casual brands like Sweet Green, Fast uh, Five Guys, Kava. Um, so there was this hotbed of activity around fast casual, and it was sucking up a lot of airtime. So when I when I tried to launch Mason Dixie, I was like, I'm a nothing from nowhere. I'm not a hot chef. I don't have a pedigree. I, I worked, you know, 15 years in business management for Fortune 500 tech companies and auto. Like, <laughs> I have no business, you know, <laughs> selling biscuits. So who's going to care? And so I was like, well, screw that. I'm not going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on the product. And I'm going to focus on the fact that people think that Popeye's chicken is Southern food. You know, that's a sacrilege. Um, so I wanted to make sure that people experience the real deal. And so I was like, well, how am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to use Kickstarter as a platform to get the brand out there nationally and see where it sticks. Right. Cause maybe it wasn't going to launch in DC. Maybe it was going to launch in Atlanta and I was going to get a hotbed of activity on Kickstarter from people in Atlanta that wanted a really good chicken biscuit. Obviously that wasn't the case. I got a, a hodgepodge of responses from DC, but I got responses from, like I said, all over the world. And so I knew that it was going to be hot. So I then was like, all right, how am I going to get people, how am I going to get food in the mouth, right? And I, I decided that I was going to do a pop-up because I read about all these pop-ups in London. Um, and it was like a really cool way for people who didn't have money to start a restaurant, to start a restaurant. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Because at that time too, um, food trucks were killing it, right? And so unfortunately, they were also on auction for $90,000 starting bid. That's before the work. So I was like, I can't even afford a food truck and I can't get a license because they were on lottery. So I had to get really creative. Um, and I, I decided I was going to do a pop-up. My first pop-up I did out of the back of a gelato factory that had just opened up in this um, up and coming area in, in Washington, DC. And they sold awesome gelatos. They made them in this factory. And they also had this really cool, um, this uh, Stumptown coffee lab attached to it. So this Dolcezza Gelato. They're they're great, great brand, same premise as us. Um, honestly love them for giving us the opportunity to get started, you know, for nothing, right? So they sold coffee and gelato. I thought I was gonna sell like five biscuits an hour. 
And we were going to have this awesome little like taste fest and, you know, our friends and family were to come and support us and we could get photos. Um, the first day there was a line. It was funny because we looked up, we were so busy prepping and we, I, we, there was a little window in the garage door and I looked up and then I, and my um, sous chef at the time was like, yeah, there's, um, there's a line. And like, he thought it was supposed to happen. I, I did not. This was six o'clock in the morning, mind you. And we look up a little wow. slot and there's a line. And remind you, this is an up and coming neighborhood, not the safest place on earth to be standing outside at six in the morning. And it was wrapped around like four city blocks. It, and wow. I was like, oh my God. So I got on the phone. I was calling all my friends. If they were awake, I was like trying to get them to go and help me. And we sold out by noon. And then the next day we had double that line at 7 a.m. And we sold out double the food in the same time with all my friends. I mean, it was crazy. And that was when we got discovered by this um, kind of like artisan food hall called Union Market in D.C., and the only space they had was this like eight by 10 stall with a column in it. It had one outlet, um, no, like one small hand sink, like no infrastructure. And there wasn't any opportunity to put any infrastructure in there. So then I had to get really crafty. And this goes back to the beauty of how retail evolved um, in this last decade. Um, people got real scrappy real quick and cottage industry had its heyday, I think, in the last five years. And we were able to um, coordinate with this up and coming like commercial kitchen space that allowed us to rent fractions of a space at a time so we could scale our business. And um, they uh, they got us like infrastructure so we could share ovens and all that stuff. There was freezer space, there was everything. And then we would drive that stuff over a mile away to the market every morning. And here's the other crazy thing too. We would open at 7 a.m. because everybody wants biscuits in the morning. They want breakfast. We would open at 7 a.m., but the market wasn't open at 7. So I thought that it was going to take a long time for people to catch wind that the place was open. Because, I mean, we were sharing a space with like 20 other businesses, right? And they were all closed. Um, but we took the shot. And lo and behold, the line came with it. Um, and then all of a sudden, other people started opening. So a coffee shop opened up later or earlier, sorry, Um then all the other guys that were complimentary goods, like people that sold like grocery items started opening earlier and to take advantage of the foot traffic that we had. And then there was this awesome like community of people that wanted to support local brands in a small retail environment that, and then all of a sudden it made it cool. Like everyone was hanging out, having a biscuit, having a latte, you know, buying spices they probably didn't need, but they did cause they were there. You know, it was this really great environment of stimulus and, we just kind of outgrew it, right? Like it was um, 80 square feet um, at our peak. We would sell up by like 1030 in the morning. Nobody wants that. That's missed sales opportunities. At some point, we also tried to like do a second round where we had, um, I had a second shift come and bring second shift food to the stall. Um, we had a food truck at one point because we thought, oh, we can't do fried chicken here. Everybody wants a fried chicken biscuit. That was crazy. No one thinks about, you know what, if you, if you guys know a food truck owner, kiss that owner because the life they have is the hardest uh, in the industry. Believe you me. I mean, washing a food truck down every night takes three hours. Um, if you're frying something in a food truck, you got to wait till the oil cools before you drive or you're going to like burn yourself. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy thing. Um, so, so anyway, um, you know, once we kind of outgrew that space, we launched into um, our retail location now in the Shaw neighborhood of DC. It's near Howard University. Um, and so it's more of a permanent fit out, like fast casual setup uh, versus versus that market stall. 
Amazing. Wow. What a story. And you, you know, it's so you mentioned it was kind of such a, a magical time in many ways for food, for kind of cottage, cottage industry brands. Um, I'm always curious about this because I think, you know, in the time of COVID, there's a lot of talk about how direct to consumer brands will be funded and that their, you know, funders or, you know, investors are looking at, you know, what's going on and, you know, making different decisions. Um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Did you think about going and getting um, investors and kind of being the sweet green or the, you know, the five guys, or were you really like, this is the way we're going because, you know, I'm not a celebrity chef or what have you. So it's funny. That's, that's a great question. Um, yes, I did want to be the next sweet green. Um, I, I wanted that so badly because um, I wanted to clean up Southern food and I wanted to make a better option available than Chick-fil-A or Popeye's. Um, right. But I was, I, again, this has been the kind of running running issue for us as a brand since we got started. We're always this like underdog that no one thinks about, right? Like people don't like talking about bread because gluten-free is in. People don't like talking about fried chicken because salads are in. And it's like, you can't ignore that the top three categories of food over the course of like the last 50 years has been burgers, pizza, and fried chicken. I mean, it just, I mean, we're people, we love those things. Um, But I couldn't get any play. Like investors were just not interested in funding um, a non-trendy, uh, calorie conscious, health conscious brand. When the argument I had was that health is a lifestyle, it's not the product, but anyway. And so it was actually, it was crazy. I just kind of was like a true like grit warrior. Like everyone that worked with me was just like, let's just do anything it takes to make money and get this food out. Right. And so at that market stall um, was we, cause we would sell out all the time. Um, consumers were like, Hey, you know, um, I, I'm tired of waiting in this line and not getting biscuits. Have you thought about selling me the dough? Can't, or, and then some uh, of them were just like, you, you know, you should just sell the dough. You can't keep promising customers that you have biscuits and you don't. Right. And I was like, I could have been disgruntled and been like, you know what, whatever, you know, and just like brush right. it off and quit earlier. Yeah. Right. Or just told them off. But I, I didn't, I was like, that's an interesting thought. Let me, let me get back to you on that. And I literally, I'm not joking. My first thought was like, how the hell do I get this into a pop and fresh tin? Like, do I wrap the cardboard around the dough and then do I squish it on the, I like was desperately trying. And then I was like, what if I froze it? And then, um, my chef at the time was like, that'll ruin the integrity of the biscuit and all this stuff. And I was like, let me just try it. And I did it without telling him and I threw it on the tray. <laughs> I put it in the freezer overnight uncovered. Cause I had no idea. I was just trying it for myself. And turns out they turned out gorgeous because the key to a good biscuit is ice cold butter. And so they rose tenfold and it changed our world because then we could produce at night instead of at four o'clock in the morning, fresh baked. Um, and so we just show up at like five instead or five thirty and get the biscuits out and somebody else could be baking biscuits at the, at the, the kitchen and not worried about like, oh, let's go break down this whole stall every night and then go back to the kitchen and make these biscuits. You know, it was a lot. So it really kind of yeah. optimized the business in a good way. But, but anyway, because those consumers really were like, you know, disgruntled, they really helped me and I listened to them. And I'm not joking. The first day that I was like, all right, this works. I went to Bed Bath & Beyond 
and I bought a $100 food saver machine because I was like, I can't put these in Ziploc bags. People will call the health department. So I was like, I got to make it look fancy. And I know the guy at the meat shop was selling sous vide shanks and stuff. So I was mm-hmm. like, I'll just do the same thing. It looks sealed. They're okay doing it. So people are accepting this. So I, I put the biscuits in these um, vacuum seal bags. I filled up an igloo cooler full of them, threw ice on top of it because there wasn't room. And remember, I had one outlet, so I, I couldn't like plug a freezer in. So, um, <laughs> and then like I dropped them off. And just so you guys know, I was still working a full time job at the time because I had to finance everything out of pocket. We were bootstrapped until like 2018. So I, I was still working a full time job. Um, and it was like my commute was like an hour and a half. So I dropped off this cooler of biscuits um, with my chef at the stall. And then I told him, you know, just let me know how it goes. He calls me. I literally get into the parking lot at my at my job, and he calls me. And he goes, "Hey, are you still in DC?" And I was like, "No, I'm I'm in Virginia. I'm at my job." And he was like, "Oh, I was just gonna say, can you go back and get more biscuits?" And I was like, "What biscuits? I just dropped the like. What are you talking about?" And he was like, <laughs> yeah, well, "No, like ones? the frozen ones." He's like, "They're sold out." And it was nine like nine o'clock in the morning. So in an hour and a half, wow. we sold through the igloo cooler, which means that people were literally going out of their way to get them to take them home, put them in the freezer or take them to work and put them in the freezer. So that's where I knew it was something, something was up. And so, you know, I'm really glad we took the opportunity to really build out the the concept from there. Because again, at that time, I still thought it was going to be this nice to have tchotchke instead of a t-shirt that I could sell. Uh, and it was right. great because it's taking home the brand, right? You're experiencing that brand at home. And I thought it was marvelous. And then realize, you know, later that it was becoming a huge portion of our income. Like by the end of the first year, um, we were doing double what we were in um, consumer sales versus the restaurant. And I was like, there's this, I can't ignore this. So there's only one of me, right? So I brought in a business partner, I brought in a fleet of people to help make this stuff. And I realized that like, this is where the focus has to be, that, that I have more opportunities now to reach more people by making this product than I do trying to open a restaurant. I mean, a million dollars at a time is a lot of money and I'm competing for yeah. the same cash that the burger places and the salad places and these cool hipster concepts um, with celebrity chefs are doing. I'm never going to get their ear. So I was like, and, and at the time I could make the stuff myself and I could sell it myself and I didn't have a middleman to worry about. Granted, this was early. And then once we started growing, it obviously changed. And that's when we really had to call on investment capital. Um, I I love the underdog story. So, and by the way, I thought you were going to say the people who are waiting in line, who were going to ask for something, were going to say, I'll invest money in you. (laughs) Just, you know, have the biscuit there for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Angel investors, uh, how happy are you? And I mean, talk about this in a, a bigger circle. When I looked at your story, you know, and I'm dealing with dry goods, mainly myself, I'm not in food and beverage, but you know, a lot of dry goods, but you know, they're really trying to stay direct to consumer. They don't want to go into department stores anymore. And the equivalent for you is that you've diversified and it's been, been great for you. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm sure if there was a question in there, but if you want to talk about how important that's been to your business, I think that's, you know, hugely valuable. Totally. I mean, at the end of the day, I think humans just really want to experience things. And I think no time more than now, um, that is evident, right? When it, when it all gets removed from you, you realize how important uh, the retail experience is to each and every one of our lives. 
Um, I mean, I think people right now are looking forward to going to the grocery store as their only retail outlet, right? Absolutely. So um, I'm glad for that. I love it. <laughs> I like grocery <laughs> store shopping. So I'm like, oh, people are experiencing what I like. Um, but, but you know, I this kind of goes back to that direct to consumer comment. And actually, like my whole reason why I love retail, right? It's like the, the experience element is why I think D2C ultimately struggles. Um, and brands that focus solely on D2C will ultimately struggle. Because at the end of the day, yes, it's convenient to get a box delivered to your door. Yes, it's convenient to get these awesome exclusive items I couldn't get at a store. But it's also inhibiting because the experience is just not there. And the top of mind experience is just not there. And the impulse buying experience for trial is just not there. You have to spend so much money getting into the digital sphere to get the attention of a customer that had you been in retail was stumbling across your item and decided to try it and could be Mason Dixie's customer now. Like that was my customer's experience. Um, we, we had a foray in D2C for a while because we wanted to be able to offer the item to other people in other states where we didn't have a grocery store anchor. Um, mm -hmm. And quite frankly, it was a bad idea. It was, it was expensive. It was not profitable. Um, it was wasteful. I mean, here I am talking about sustainability and traceability and um, I'm throwing dry ice into styrofoam coolers and I hate styrofoam. Like it's awful. And, and then I'm shipping these boxes through air trains, planes, and automobiles overnight because it's frozen. It has to be overnighted. And for right, what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And for what? Yeah. Like what, what's happening? And so we stopped that at the end of last year and I'm, I'm glad um, because at the end of the day, it's, we're living our principles again, which I feel really good about. And um, I'm learning more about my customer this way than I ever did digitally um, because I'm now forcing my team to think outside the box more about how we interact with them. Uh, we're looking more about the experience, the shopping experience. We, we recently just rebranded and you'll see all of our new branding and new packaging out um, starting next month. Um, and it's, it's, smarter than ever, right? And it's bolder than ever. And it's going to create a fun discovery in the frozen aisle. And that's really, I think, again, if you think about the world from an experience standpoint, it, that's why retail is so important. It's not just the products in it. It's the experience. I have so many questions. <laughs> I, like, like not not because you haven't been providing immense amount of information, but I, my mind is just on fire right now. I, 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 all right. The first thing I have to ask is the the way that you actually appear in stores, it's frozen, right? Yes. Okay. How did you make the conclusion that it needed to be frozen? One, maybe it was just obvious. And what kind of steps did you have to take to, and what kind of complications come into providing a uh, really your wholesaling? Mm -hmm. So um, why perhaps this couldn't be D to C for you right now, or how does that play? How does it being a frozen product affect the whole operation and all of the things that you can or can't do? So that's, those are great questions. Um, again, I decided to go the frozen route with Mason Dixie because when I, when I first visualized when someone was like, can you just sell me the dough? That was the first customer that said, that's exactly what he said. He said, can't you just sell me the dough? And I was like, no, because the first thought in my mind was I keep that butter really cold and I can't give you the dough that's then been manhandled 
and then just hand it to you because then it's in transport it would just fail and so you're going to get like you know how like the pop and fresh biscuits never rise really nicely it's because there's it's failing because it's it's not cold enough um so i knew that that wasn't going to be an option and so again happy accident against the wall of my chef i just threw the biscuits on a freezer tray and i threw them in the in the walk-in and hope for the best um and when that worked that's when the second question came up, right? Like, how do I package this? Because I can't put it in like a, a pillow pack. I don't know how you get one of those machines, right? At the time, I was like, right. they were magic, right? And then I was like, okay, uh, I can't put it in a Ziploc bag because the health department would shut me down. And I was like, I can't put them in like a, uh, I can't afford to give everyone a Cambro. I'd love that. So, you know, I can't plastic wrap it. That's when the vacuum seal came in. And what I didn't realize at the time was it was going to save our lives. Because the um, we make a natural biscuit, so the leavening system in it, um, you know, when you make a sourdough, it's yeast. Well, in biscuits, it's baking powder. And the world operates on aluminum-based baking powder because um, how it works is that the aluminum gets hot. And then when it gets to temperature really fast, it cooks the biscuit, right? That's why people love horrible things in food. It makes it faster, better, stronger, um, but not good for you because aluminum causes cancer. So um, when you use a metal-free baking powder like we do, um, instead what's happening is it's creating a um, chemical reaction with the, uh, like, whatever it's going to turn into liquid. So it's the butter melting, it's the fresh dairy that we use, all that stuff um, reacts with um, heat, and it's creating basically a steam effect inside. So it's kind of like a steam uh, chemical reaction versus hot metal um, cooking it. So that needs to be preserved because every time you add heat to the process, even if it's room temperature, anything beyond frozen, um, it's causing a chemical reaction live. So the vacuum seal process locked out as much CO2 as we could get. And on top of that, um, it helped us, you know, try to keep the biscuits as cold as possible because they're so close together. So they acted like their own little ice packs. Um, and so in the, in the supply chain system, you know, that biscuit travels thousands of miles, um, in a frozen tractor trailer, it's still contained and it's helping to kind of lock in that process. There's a lot of challenges around that. We, we were the first to innovate a natural biscuit in frozen and we actually failed twice. We, um, and, and, and quite frankly, we didn't even know about the aluminum thing at first. We, our first biscuits were made with just, you know, clabber girl baking powder. Cause that's what you get out of you know, Cisco when you order food. Um, and when I, you know, realized that it wasn't healthy and I started realizing that to get into Whole Foods and stuff, we couldn't, couldn't have aluminum in it. Um, I tried using a double acting baking powder. So that's the stuff that you use to make pancakes. And that's where all the little bubbles happen in the batter. And I was like, yeah, okay, perfect. Well, I didn't realize that's instant acting. So like, if you don't bake right then it's dead. So we had all these biscuits that were duds they didn't rise and we were like, oh my God, let's get it off the shelf. And so um, instead of like trying to freak everybody out, we just, you know, bought them all back from Whole Foods <laughs> and tried to do it all over again. And then um, we did it again with this slower acting baking powder. Um, but we didn't realize that it was still too fast. So we had to innovate. Um, and now we actually have our own proprietary formula um, that helps us through this whole process. And it doesn't... Um, challenge itself through all the supply chain issues and can last a little bit through through freeze thaw. So honestly, freezing is what's been amazing for us. It's allowed us to remain clean label, 
it's allowed us to take on a huge white space for us. Um, a lot of innovation opportunity in Frozen. And quite frankly, it's the best decision we've ever made given the times because now we have a viable product that people can stow away. You know, they don't have to worry about, do I have, do I, do I have to eat this right now? Does it have a shelf life for tomorrow? It's, you know, it's got a year of shelf life. You're good. Um, you, you clearly know so much, Asha, about uh, you or have at least learned so much about the science of food and, and uh, you know, these things you've had to learn, but you didn't really come from no. food in the beginning. You were uh, an executive at companies like Toshiba and Audi who consulted for Microsoft. You're a graduate of George Washington University. Um, how, first of all, how did you start accumulating this knowledge? Because you seem to you know, have it right off the cuff. But secondly, what did you bring with you from your experience working with companies like that that you've applied to your ability to, to lead this company towards success? Yeah, I mean, um, first answer is I made a lot of mistakes and I learned from them. I mean, no, there's no, there's no handbook out there that tells you how to open a business, let alone how to start a biscuit company, let alone how to do it naturally, right? Like you make mistakes and then you realize why you make the mistakes you made. Um, and then you humbly ask for help, right? I, I am so blessed because I've run into so many amazing, amazing people um, that offered up their help from the first architect we ever worked with that taught me about how hard it was to open a restaurant and prevented me from making drastic mistakes and just trying to wing it, right, to um, now our current VP of innovation. Um, she actually was a consulting uh, a food scientist that was helping us with this baking powder issue. And she taught me all the ins and outs about why this is so important. Um, and I, and I, you know, catalog all of that. And it really created like a, a rubric for me of what we had to do and, and how, and if it wasn't readily apparent, we had to figure it out. Um, you know, we had this also the whole packaging stuff, like we had this blessing, this engineer from Hershey who never asked for money and he just helped us figure it out. Like so many people will come to your rescue if you just humbly ask. Um, and it's something that I think, um, you know, I've never been afraid to ask questions. I think um, working as a woman in very male dominated fields, it's easy to recoil and not sound stupid and ask questions. I think you sound smarter when you ask questions. And so I very, I very quickly climbed through the ranks in my corporate career because I did ask questions and I spoke up when I felt like I had to. Um, and it allowed people to build confidence in me, not only just like that I was a confident person, but that they could trust me because I was trying to help. I was trying to understand. Um, and I definitely brought that forward in how we run the business. And I think the other thing, too, is there's no point in starting a business if you don't dream big. You got to think big. Like Microsoft didn't get started because he wanted to sell one computer, right? Um, he wanted to change the world. And I don't think that a biscuit necessarily will change the world. But am I changing how people are consuming polyurethane and aluminum as a base point in their diet? Absolutely. You know, there's 1.5 billion dollars worth of biscuits sold in grocery stores annually, um, and people are eating and consuming 1.5 billion dollars worth of aluminum. That's horrible to me. Um, so I think you know, really thinking big, really dreaming big has really been a product of working at very big companies with big missions. Um, also, team building and mentorship. Like I was very fortunate to work at companies with really good layering structures. 
And um, it's forced, it forced me to know, like, you don't have to hire a whiz kid who knows everything or the Harvard grad. You can hire someone like we, we hired a lot of second chancers um, in, when we first got started. And these are people who are hungry, who want to work, but don't get the opportunity because they did something stupid in their life one time. Um, but you know what? They are the hardest working people. They are so proud of what they're doing and they bring things up to you when you need them to like this biscuit isn't rising or there's a big hole in it because the butter chunk was too big. I mean, they, they know these things, they become their own experts and they help you be a better manager and a better leader because they're, if you listen to them, you can really move quickly and isolate issues before they become pandemics. And that's something I think I also learned, um, you know, being from, from big corporate America. You know, you mentioned earlier, uh, the biscuit being a central, an important part of Southern eating mm -hmm. uh, and doing it right is legitimate Southern fare. Um, what, if at all, have you thought about in terms of collaborating with other non-competing companies that together you can assemble a legit uh, Southern meal that people can buy in such and such a, a market? Oh, I'm constantly searching, <laughs> constantly searching for somebody who has the best barbecue sauce, who has the best black eyed peas that are frozen, the, you know, the best fried chicken batter. I mean, I'm constantly on lookout for brand partnerships. That was also actually a really important attribute that helped us scale our business very early on was I told you about Dolceza and they're opening their doors to us, but it was also other players in the field that, um, lent us their space. There were a few bars that like, were like, yeah, we're not open on Saturday morning. Why don't you just do a pop-up or, you know, yeah, we, um, we sell this jam or we sell these pickles. Do you mind throwing in a biscuit sandwich? Sure. And it was just this vibrant co-marketing opportunity because we converted their customers into Mason Dixie customers and our customers converted into, you know, whoever's pickles customers. So it was, um, it, that collaboration, I'm still always, always, always looking out for awesome brands to support. Um, you know, we were we were luckily part of the uh, Chobani incubator last year, and um, one of the brands that I love dearly is a Southern-based brand. Um, they're called Seal the Seasons, and um, what's amazing about them is that they actually freeze. Um, this is another factoid, I guess, about transparency and and supply chain. Um, you know, when farmers uh, grow produce. They have they have contracted produce. So if their yield is bigger than that, they don't get any extra money for it because they're only committed to like whatever the buy was. So a lot of these times these farmers don't get any money of it. So they're throwing it away because they can't sell that much product at the farmer's market. So instead of throwing it away, their founders were like, let's let's freeze it and sell it and we'll sell it as local produce to local grocery stores. Well, that set off a chain reaction, and now they have this amazing company. They're found nationwide, and basically, they don't sell that frozen fruit that got um, that was supposed to be thrown away. They sell it only within a 200 mile radius, and so that's a brand that we frequently partner with because it makes a best the best cobbler you've ever had with our biscuits. It makes great breakfast parfaits. It's a great partnership opportunity for us. So always on the lookout for southern or um, you know iconically uh, game changing brands that really go with a biscuit. Uh, this interview could probably go on for seven hours. I agree um, with you. <laughs> I, I'm not going to ask them. I am curious, but I don't want to end the interview this way. How long the restaurant was opened until COVID hit? Oh, we're still open. Um, you're still, still open. open. Okay, so you're doing cake. Yep. Okay, great. Yep. Amazing. 
Um, I'm sure you have some opinions on, you know, the restaurant industry and, and how they'll survive and get through it. It's certainly applicable to what's going on now. I don't want to end on a, a, a downer, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I think, again, coming from a time where um, cottage industry was big, I think you people are people do amazing things in adversity. And I think that restaurants will find a way to band together and find some amazing way to get out of this um, because you're, you're your best when you have to work really hard, really gritty and really scrappy. Um, so I do believe there's an out here. Um, I believe that partnerships and, um, you know, collaborations in, in the retail environment will spur. Um, and I think that, you know, we'll all get through this together as long as we keep supporting these businesses um, as much as we can. Amazing. Great. I think that's a po- very positive point. To, uh, absolutely, to by the on. way. I, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think I've sheltered at home too long. I went to a little bit of a dark place there. <laughs> Uh, uh, turned uh, me around. Uh, <laughs> before we get to uh, before we get to the uh, personal uh, questions here, Asha, I, I did want to ask. I, I, you mentioned, I believe you said you have a VP of innovation. Mm-hmm. If I remember that correctly. Yes. Uh, can you tell us about? I mean, obviously, you've innovated along the way, just even being in stores. But what when you think about innovation, that you have a full time person working on innovation. What are you talking about in your business when it comes to innovation? Are you talking about just new SKUs, you know, going, adding scones, for example? What does it mean, innovation for you? So we actually have two people working on innovation. I feel very lucky about that because um, I think if you're going to be a game changer and um, a change maker brand, you have to spend the most resources in that, in the, in the people that are going to make that change. And that's really the creative department for us. They, They are the creative department. Um, and innovation, great question. This kind of goes back to your original question about what did I bring from my corporate background? Uh, working in automotive, um, you know, you learn a lot about how and why this industry is so amazing and why it's been backed for so long by the government and stuff. It's because um, from a manufacturing perspective and from a scale perspective, I truly believe there is no better industry to look at than the automotive industry. And one of the things they always said about innovation was it always wasn't about the gadgets and gizmos necessarily or changing the entire chassis. It was also about product improvement. And so frequently when you're buying a car, it's the same car from six years ago. It's just, it's a product improvement. It's actually better than the one six years ago. Um, And that's actually innovative because you want to implement the best technologies and fuel savings. You want to implement the best technologies and like paint chipping, right? You want to put that on that same car that had nothing wrong with it from a drivability standpoint. So same thing for us, for, for us, our innovation department also means what can we do better from a quality perspective, from an experience perspective, down to the cookie instructions. Um, innovation really is like, how do we keep the product relevant in changing times? How do we keep offering um, not just new items and new SKUs, but it's also how do we offer different pack changes? How do we offer different sizes? For, for stuff like baking, you don't just get a different biscuit cutter and now you have a different size biscuit. You got to reconstruct the whole darn thing. It, you got to start from the bottom. So um, that department really does all of that for us. And they bring your attention to where we could be doing something better. And I'm really, really proud of them for, for always chasing quality first. Very good. All right. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, uh, pivot slightly as we uh, as we conclude here with uh, look a little bit more of the human side of Asha okay. uh, with some 
some personal questions. Okay. Uh, the, we're, this isn't designed to embarrass you or anything, but <laughs> just to, to get off the topic of retail sure. and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave this off. I've got a burning question. So uh, Asha, whether or not you are an accomplished cook or not, uh, if you, uh, what is your last meal oh. that you would have that has to involve a biscuit? Oh, good question. Um, I am a pie fiend. Uh, my favorite food is actually apple pie. So meat, uh, one of my meat, I always ask the wife, I'm like, you know, that suggestion, I'm like, boy, it'd be so nice to have pie, which translates into, Hey, would you make a pie? Which is really a terrible thing to ask for. But, it's so good. Yes. Right. Like it's, there's nothing like it. And it's funny. Um, my VP of ops also, his favorite food is apple pie. And I was like hired. <laughs> so all right. That was all in, but I'd probably say like an apple cobbler made with biscuits. Um, I'd probably Ooh. also say there is nothing like our classic fried chicken biscuit. I mean, it is made of the gods. I mean, it's like, you know, we make this amazing fried chicken. Then we top it off with um, some local honey and then uh, Crystal's hot sauce. Crystal's is very important in the equation, just so you know. Uh, it's got the perfect tang and perfect heat. So I'd probably say those were the two biscuit-based items that I would definitely, definitely want. And what is the soundtrack of your life? So I'm sort of interested. Do you play? Do you play music in your stores? In your store, we do. In your restaurant. We do. And is that is that music come from your selection, or is it programmed by the employees, or what? What do you? How, how does that happen? So it is my selection, and it's a lot of. Um, 50s, 60s, 70s, kind of doo um, soul music. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, we've gone through the gamut of all kinds of music, and there is something to be said about that good old doo because people stop to dance to it at the register. They could be sitting in line <laughs> for hours, but then all of a sudden, I know you won't leave me. Everyone's dancing, right? And people are singing, and it's just, it's such a good vibe. So I think... Um, it's really important to have that nostalgic piece because I think nobody can ignore it and it just brings a smile to everyone's face. So probably that good old school. That'd be so fun to, to work that into a promotion in the restaurant. If you feel the need to run one, that's like, if you dance at checkout, we'll throw in an extra biscuit or something like that. You know? <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. I was When I was talking to our brand agency, I was like, how do we work in the fact that people dance when they're about to get their biscuit? And they're like, oh, it's- that's a, it's, it's got to be Instagram. It's got to be Instagram. Yeah, actually, this is, great idea for a challenge. Mark. This is tick. Yeah, this is TikTok I all over it. I was so, gonna say, I sense a TikTok coming. This is TikTok. So, yeah. so listen. I mean, I don't want to give away your product, but if you can figure out a way to encourage people to be willing to be a video of them that goes on TikTok or whatever on your channel, you know, show us that you tagged us. Come and get your free biscuit or get your ten percent off totally. or get a free this or whatever. There's got to be so much possibilities. It could this could turn into a really viral marketing uh, campaign. Yeah, I'm glad we had this conversation. I love it. I love it. You know, I love what both the questions you asked and mine would be food focused anyway. I mean, you know, are you, uh, do you cook at home? I do. I love to cook. Gotcha. Okay. That's a lot of, a lot of food prepping and being around it. It, and everything. it is, but, but you know, it goes with the, the biz. I think if you love food though, you love when it's good and you do everything you can to make sure that it is. And so I'm just like, yeah. you know, that type A that really loves it because it's the one time in the day where I, my brain completely shuts off because I'm so focused on making yep. sure I don't screw up my dinner. 
you know, I want a quality product out there. So I'm just focused on it. Um, But I love it. It's, it is literally, I could run for hours and still be thinking about work, but when I'm cooking, I don't. So I love it. It's nice. Mm -hmm. It's therapeutic. It is. That's totally. So Rebecca's coming down to Baltimore for dinner and Asha, 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 clearly you're looking to impress her. So what is it, what is it that you make? Oh gosh, I make everything. Honestly. Um, I'm trying to think like if I could make uh, a shine out dinner, what would I make? You know, uh, I like to make things people don't normally eat. And then I like open up their world. So one of the things I love to make is, is duck dishes because frequently people are oh, scared to try. Yeah. So I make a really good, especially in the peak of summer, a uh, grilled duck breast with a tomato risotto, uh, tomato and squash risotto. Delicious. Wow. That sounds oh, amazing. By the way, and I'm a good match for you because I really, um, my palate is open and open to new oh, things. I, I mean, you really you. have to I got scare me with something uh, if I wouldn't try it. So amazing. Well, we have to have dinner when this is all over. We'll do something. Exactly. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, the next time that you do find yourself in New York, I think we should definitely connect. Let's the three of us have dinner and that'd be great. That'd be great. All right. So let's finish up this way. We often invite our guests, Asha, to share a final thought, if you will, uh, a chance you can reflect on this conversation or any other wisdom or thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners. Does anything come to mind? One of the things I constantly remind myself of as an entrepreneur, and I I like telling everybody this whenever I go on like talks and things. And it's just um, what one of my jobs, I had a coworker um, who was desperately trying to get his wife over from Mexico to America to live with him. And he had sometimes it was just so futile with all the border rules and things. And he just got so discouraged. And then one day it all happened. And he told me, he goes, you know what, Asha, what have you ever failed at that you tried your hardest? And it yeah. seems so simple and so corny at the time. And then I, but actually, because he asked me and I forced myself to really ask myself, what have I failed at that I really tried my hardest? And you know, it's really hard to think of an answer. So I think it's really important, no matter what you're doing in life, no matter what's happening, you know, failure is only what you make it. If you put a period on it, it is failure. If you're trying, and you're climbing, it's never a done deal. Wow. Uh, Write that one down. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. (laughs) All right. uh, And uh, finally, Asha, how can people uh, connect with you, follow you, uh, connect with your brand, obviously? Uh, How can they how can they reach out? Absolutely. So you can definitely find, I have a very long name, but you can find me through uh, LinkedIn. If you follow our page, Mason Dixie uh, Foods, you can then click through and you'll find my personal LinkedIn. Um, and then beyond that, definitely follow us on Instagram at Mason Dixie Biscuit Co. and Facebook at Mason Dixie Biscuit Co. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you. All right. That is uh, Asha Abalesha, the founder and CEO of Mason Dixie Biscuits and uh t- just such an accomplished, really interesting person too. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing this time with us. Uh, congratulations on everything you've accomplished. I, I, I really get the sense, and I bet you agree, Rebecca. This feels like the beginning of the story. Oh, thank you. And, uh, absolutely, or, or an actual book. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm convinced of both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, uh, everybody needs a biscuit, right. so you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Asha, and good luck. And uh, stay safe, by the way. Stay Thank safe. you. You guys too. Thanks. Thank you. Right, that's it for this uh, this really t- terrific, really terrific uh, uh, interview. I, I I know both Rebecca and I uh, did not want to end. 
but but I'm, uh, that unfortunately is the end of it. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, until next time, for Rebecca Fitz. Thanks, Mark. All right, I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day, everybody. Bye bye. This has been Retail Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.